In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space and ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us to bind us to our Lord Jesus Christ. That every thought, word, and work of ours may begin with you and through you be happily completed through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, it's about 8.45. So my plan is to go about 45-minute increments and then take a break. Okay, because any more than that becomes super painful. Uh, so, uh, so we'll go until about 9.30. And, um, and what I'd ask you to do right now is uh, to take your notebooks, if you brought them. I want you to write down four questions. And these are just questions that you hold in the back of your mind throughout the entire week. Okay? So the first question is, what is love? Leave yourself some space to like write your thoughts down. The second question is, what is more important, to love or to be loved? Third question is, who is Jesus? The last question is, who am I to Jesus? Who am I to Jesus? And we'll just leave that there, and I'll give you time later on to reflect on that. Okay, so I want to start by introducing myself and talking, telling you a little bit about why I think this is so important. Um, so just starting with who is Father Kokali? I should have you write down that question. Yeah. All right. Um, so I've been the Family Life Office Director for the past year. Uh, the year before that, I was the Director of Religious Education, and... Um, Four years before that, I was in Rome studying marriage, family, human sexuality, the human person at the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family. And like that time that I spent in Rome was like the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life for a lot of reasons, but mostly because I started to figure out the answer to those four questions while I was in graduate school. Now, I'd already been a priest for seven years. So it seems ridiculous that I didn't know who Jesus was. But if I'm honest, I'm not sure I knew who Jesus was. Because there's a lot of distortions that enter into our life. You know? And the first two questions about what is love, those are answers mostly come from our own family experience when we were growing up. And we just kind of assume that people understand these words when we use them. You know, but more and more, because of families breaking down and things like that, people don't know those the answers to those questions very readily. Or their answer to the question might not be the same answer that our Lord would give. And, uh, and so my vocation starts with my family. 
And I always sort of draw it on the board because it's hard to keep track of. <laughs> so my vocation started with my dad, who was born in Ireland. And he grew up in this little town on the west coast of Ireland called Enniscrone. And uh, he, when he was 19 years old, he met a woman and fell in love. And they got married. And then my sister Donna was born in England and raised by her Italian grandmother in Ireland. Now she's married to an Italian who owns four Irish pubs in Rome. She's <laughs> like super convenient when I was in grad school. Uh, my sister Jacqueline was born in Ireland. Beautiful name. Thanks, Sister Jacqueline. <laughs> and then... And then my dad, when he was about 22 years old, he moved to the United States in order to sort of start his life over again. So he moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, because all Irish people move there. Um, I had a great uncle who had settled there. And so my dad moved there to sort of start over again. And my brother Mark was born in Tulsa. Uh, when Mark was very young, maybe like two years old, my dad left that family. Uh, they got divorced. My dad moved around. He lived in Memphis for a while. He lived in New Orleans for a while, met some people. They were moving to Michigan to work in the automobile factories, and he decided that seemed like a good idea, so he went with them. My mom, meanwhile, grew up in Michigan. Uh, when she was about 16 years old, she fell in love with a boy, and they got married and had my brother James and my brother John. When John was about two years old-ish, they got divorced. So my dad made it to Michigan, met my mom. Yes. They fell in love, got married. I was born. And two weeks shy of my second birthday, my mom died of cancer. So then my mom has a father, my grandpa, Right. He was also divorced and remarried. My grandpa was a great uncle. My great uncle actually had a child, and his wife died in childbirth. And so he had a lot of compassion and empathy for my dad. So when my great uncle came to my mom's funeral, he invited my dad to go to Vermont and visit him. When he went to Vermont, he met my mom's first cousin, who had just been divorced. And then they fell in love and got married. And had my sister Sarah, my sister Katie, my brother Kevin. And when I was a sophomore in college, what do you want to guess? They got divorced. All right. That's how I became the family life office director. Okay. <laughs> But it is really very much how I found my vocation. And uh, lots of people think, well, if you're a priest, then you must come from this perfect family and you prayed the rosary growing up, you came out of the womb singing the Alleluia. <laughs> but uh, that's my family that I grew up in. And from a young age, because I grew up in that family, I started to pray with Psalm 139 before I knew Psalm 139 existed, which says, Lord, I praise you for the wonder of my being. Okay, I praise you for the wonder of my being. Because at a young age, I would marvel at the fact that God had to take my dad through all these circumstances across an ocean in order to meet my mom just in time for me to be born before my mom died. And so I would often reflect on what is it that our Lord wants from my life? 
No, Lord, I praise you for the wonder of my being. And so from a young age, I started thinking God has a plan for my life. And I think I was about seven years old when I first started to think about being a priest. But my motivation was mostly because I wanted to know my mother. You know, there was a big gap in my life, and I didn't really know a lot about my mother. When I would ask questions about her, I think because of my parents' pain about the whole situation, they didn't give me a lot of answers. And so um, when I asked my dad about my mother, he would just kind of say, well, you didn't really bond with her because she knew she was dying, and you know, she wanted you to be able to bond with your new mom. Um, later, I found out that wasn't really the whole answer. And so I wanted to know who she was. And I remember reading a children's Bible. I was going to bed at night, and my great-grandma had sent me this children's Bible with illustrations and everything. And one night I said, like, I really want to know my mom, and my mom's in heaven. So I really need to get to heaven. So I guess I'll become a priest, because all priests go to heaven. (laughs) Right? Like, that's how we think when we're a kid. And so that was when I started thinking about being a priest. Now, as I got older into high school, I got involved with youth ministry and some other things. And I said, no, I think God wants me to be a priest. And, um, but I grew up in a diocese where we didn't encourage vocations right out of high school. So I had to go to college first. And I had gotten into the military academy at West Point, like right at the last hour before uh, I had to report. I, I think I got accepted two weeks before I had to report. Uh, went to West Point, studied Arabic and Middle Eastern studies, uh, graduated in 1996, became an infantry officer in the Army, um, spent three years on active duty, went to airborne school, ranger school, all that stuff at Fort Benning, and then I went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And it was in my second year of active duty that I just realized that I was pretty miserable because I'd been running away from God a lot in that time in my life. And uh, a lot of the distortions in my life were catching up with me. And so I went on this long drive, and I was on my way back from Florida, and I just said, like, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? And very distinctly, I heard him say to me, I want you to be a priest, stupid. (laughs) And so I drove straight to the church where I attended Mass, went to the Marian Shrine, prayed the rosary, said, okay, if you want me to be a priest, then you have to make this happen. Because many times in my life, I'd asked about being a priest, and it was always put off, like, you can do that later. And so two days later, I was in my office, and the battalion chaplain walked by. I stopped him and asked him if there's any way to get out of the Army early. And he said, oh, yeah, uh, the priest recruiter is going to be here on Friday. Just happened to be that week. So that was weird. Um, met with the priest recruiter and he gave me all the paperwork I needed to get out of the army early. He was just like, oh, I helped two guys do this in the last two years. Here you go. Boom. Hmm. And then all this paper sitting on my desk staring at me and I'm thinking to myself, oh, no. Like, now I actually have to do this. So it took me a while to build up my courage and then I started filing papers. Um, a friend of mine introduced me to the priest he went to for spiritual direction, Father Gerald Baker. And he's good friends with lots of priests from Lincoln. And so he said to me, like, what does God want you to do with your life? And I said, I think he wants me to be a priest. He's like, good, so do I. And I'm your spiritual director, so my will is God's will. (laughs) Okay, we can talk about that. Um, And so he, but then he says to me, where do you want to be a priest? And I'm thinking, 
I'll probably go back home to Michigan. And he just kind of looked at me and goes, Michigan? I don't know Michigan. Lincoln. You should go to Lincoln. And I'm like, why would I want to go to Lincoln? Like, Nebraska is like a big cornfield with a football stadium in the center. <laughs> and so I came out here on a visit, and it just turned out to be, I don't know, it, it just seemed like home. I can't really explain it any other way. I met all the seminarians at St. Greg's. seemed like a place where I could fit in. Um, and so I entered in 1999. Spent six years in seminary. was ordained in 2005. And then I did uh, one year at St. Joe's, three years North American Martyrs, and then I went to Rome to graduate school. And, uh, and I'll kind of tell my own story as we go. Um, and now I'm here. And this teaching of John Paul II had a great impact on me starting about 11 years ago. And it was about 11 years ago, I was a deacon at the cathedral, and I had just given a homily on the Trinity. And, um, and this lady comes up to me after Mass, and she was just like, that was a great Theology of the Body homily. You should teach a class on Theology of the Body. And I was like, uh, i got nothing else to do. So, because I really didn't. And so I spent my whole summer teaching Theology of the Body. That person's in the room right now. Um, so I spent the whole summer studying and teaching Theology of the Body. But admittedly, the first time I read it, I didn't really grasp the depth of what I was reading. But it, it sort of provoked this curiosity in me that I kept reflecting on for my entire priesthood. And when I was teaching high school, like, I taught theology of the body in high school and just knew that there was something really important about it. Uh, it wasn't until I had come back from Rome and started trying to teach what I had learned that I realized just how important it is. And just to kind of contextualize um, why it's so important, uh, I think we could reflect on the past year and like look at everything that's happened in the past year, because it's been a crazy year. You know, like uh, it was a year ago that we had this article on purple penguins in the paper, and this whole question of how do we address the issue of gender, how do we understand what masculinity and femininity are. And as a church, how can we articulate the church's position in language that the world will understand what we're saying and will not sort of just say, oh, well, you just are judgmental or you're a bigot or like that explanation doesn't make any sense to me. And so we had this whole gender identity crisis and questioning. And then, you know, a few months ago, my childhood hero, Bruce Jenner, who I wanted to be when I was a kid, because he's like the ultimate man, comes out to the world and tells the world that God put a woman's soul inside of him when he made him. And he goes through this whole, like, all these surgeries and everything. And that the whole, like, world is praising him. You know, and so... Culturally, what is that doing to our young people who are growing up in our culture when they see that and it's portrayed as heroic? And then, just a couple of weeks ago, we have this change in law by the Supreme Court to recognize um, really marriage as any relationship between any two people who want to be recognized by the federal government. So there's a lot of questions and 
I think that there needs to be a depth to our answers to those questions and our own reflection on those questions. Because otherwise, we can tend to try to give like an easy answer that isn't received very well by the person that we're talking to. And in his, it's about audience 22 or 24 in the audiences. Um, and we're going to, this will come up, I think, tomorrow in class. This quote will come up directly. I probably won't be able to find it right now. But John Paul II says that, you know, the questions of the modern world will always be changing. However, the answer, the response to those questions is always going to be the response of Jesus. Okay, it's always going to be the response of Jesus. And so as we get into today's lesson, we're going to start with Matthew chapter 19 when the Pharisees come and they say to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason, whatever? And Jesus' response is not marriage is between one man and one woman forever. His response is not about like why you're wrong about marriage. His response is simply from the beginning it was not so. Okay, from the beginning it was not so. So our response to gender identity questions is from the beginning it was not so. Our response to gay marriage is from the beginning it was not so. Our response to whether or not a divorced and remarried person who doesn't have an annulment can receive Holy Communion is, from the beginning, it was not so. Now that from the beginning, he took about 30 Wednesday audiences to answer that from the beginning. Like, what does from the beginning, it was not so mean? Like, it's like this much of this book. And so that's what we're going to reflect more deeply on, is what does that from the beginning, it was not so mean? Because to simply throw out there, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, isn't an adequate answer. It's a pithy answer that you know we all laugh about when we're with each other, but it's not an adequate answer to the person who's always grown up feeling like they don't belong. Okay, so books. I'm going to teach out of this. This book is really hard to comprehend. And actually, after studying in graduate school for four years, I understand the vocabulary in this book. Um, and so I don't really think, you know, I think it's good to stretch ourselves and to try to like comprehend like what's really here. It's also important to look at what points are being made where in this book. And it's also important to just reflect on the fact that this book was written to explain the document Humanae Vitae. Right? You know the document Humanae Vitae, right? If I print out Humanae Vitae, it is 14 pages. That's it. 14 pages. So this book was written to explain 14 pages. Okay? It's important for us to remember that. Okay? Because John Paul II realized that there's a lot more that we need to reflect on here because the distortions in our society are really big and... So we need to go back to the beginning and reflect on what love is. Okay, so remember that's to explain 14 pages. A summary book that I recommend is this book called Called to Love, and I sent this out in an email by Carl Anderson and Jose Granados. Now some people who have looked at this, they still think it's a little difficult 
Um, but it's a lot more fundamental than other summary books that are out there. Okay, so this book follows the sort of pattern that I'm going to teach out of, which is that there's three kinds of love. To love as a child, as a spouse, as a parent. And that's the way that this book is structured. Okay, Christopher West's Theology of the Body for Beginners. A lot of people like it, but I don't know that it adequately responds to the current cultural questions. Okay, I'm also going to be referring to Pope Benedict and like his theology of love, which is mostly in God is love, Deus Caritas Est. Okay, but I'll just be kind of filling that in as we go. Okay, all right. So context. Right, the first audience that John Paul II gave on theology of the body was the fifth of September, nineteen seventy nine. Okay. Pope John Paul II makes reference to the upcoming Synod of Bishops that would study the topic, the role of the Christian family in the modern world. So when John Paul II started these audiences, he was also calling for a Synod on the family, okay, which is another reason why, sort of historically, God wants us doing this right now. Okay, he's calling for a Synod on the family, and he started these Wednesday audiences. Right now, Pope Francis is in the middle of a bunch of Wednesday audiences on the family, to get ready for the next synod on the family. Okay, that synod produced the document Familiaris Consortio, or the role of the Christian family in the modern world. Okay, the pastoral challenges that we face today, which I just covered, ruptured families, divorced, remarried Catholics, gender identity, same-sex marriage, we have all of these pastoral challenges right now. And to answer that question, we answer it the same way Jesus did. Okay. So in the beginning of the audiences, John Paul II starts by reflecting on Matthew chapter 19. So I'm just going to read from that section. It says, When Jesus finished these words, he left Galilee and went to the district of Judea across the Jordan. Great crowds followed him, and he cured them there. Some Pharisees approached him and tested him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause whatever? He said in reply, Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. They said to him, Then why did Moses command that the man give the woman a bill of divorce and dismiss her? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful and marries another, commits adultery. And so when the Pharisees come to our Lord, they have this question on divorce. And our Lord says, from the beginning it was not so. And he takes two quotes from two different chapters of Genesis as he explains this. So Jesus is going back to Genesis. Right? Jesus is going back to Genesis. And first he says, 
Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Right? When he says the Creator made them male and female, Jesus is quoting Genesis chapter 1. He goes on and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2. So Jesus is the one that goes back to reflect on the beginning, quoting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Okay, why is this important? Because John Paul II didn't just make up this method of reflecting on both of these chapters in Genesis. Right? It's our Lord who did that. And everything that the church teaches about marriage, we teach because we've received it from the Lord. Okay, we've received it from the Lord. And it's just a very simple response to people who criticize the church. And they say, well, a bunch of celibate men are making up all these rules about marriage. But it's not. It's Jesus who made the rules about marriage. For a great part of his theological career, Pope Benedict tried to find a way of helping divorced and remarried people to go to communion. He wrote on it a lot. And you'll see it show up in his writings from the time he was a young theologian. When he was the head of the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith, he ordered a study on the practice of the Eastern Church and the whole history of the practice of the Eastern Church because the Orthodox allow people to receive communion after a period of penance. You might like hear about this in the news because people are always saying, well, we should look at what the Orthodox do. But Pope Benedict already did this whole historical study and the person, it was this guy named Father Pelland, P-E-L-L-A-N-D. And the result of all of that work, at the end of the day, when he was the head of the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith, Joseph Ratzinger wrote an introduction to a document called Pastoral Care of Divorced and Remarried Faithful. And in that introduction, he says, we have to be faithful to the words of Jesus. Like, there's no way of getting around the words of Jesus. Because it's Jesus who says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. It's not a bunch of celibate guys in Rome who say, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. It's Jesus. And the church does not have the authority to change the teaching of Jesus. Because if we do, then we really should not call ourselves Christians. At that point, we're no longer following Christ we're following a philosophy. So John Paul II says that Christ does not accept the discussion on the level on which his interlocutors try to introduce it. Right? He doesn't enter into dialogue about divorce. In a sense, he doesn't approve the dimension they tried to give the problem. Like He doesn't think that this question is really about divorce. It's not really even about marriage. It's about what it means to be a human being. It's about what it means to be a human being. So the questions of gender identity, same-sex marriage, all of these things, they're not really about marriage. It's about what it means to be a human being. Because in some sense... 
we've lost sight of what it means to be a human being. And when we lose sight of what it means to be a human being, then we just start inventing what it means to be a human being. And so he points back to the beginning in order to reflect more deeply on what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. So the beginning signifies what Genesis speaks about. Right? He uses those two quotes, one from Genesis 1, one from Genesis 2. And the phrase, let man not separate... What God is joined together, no human being must separate, is decisive, John Paul II says. It's decisive. In the light of this word of Christ, Genesis 2.24 states that the principle of unity and indissolubility in marriage, as the very content of the world of God, of the word of God expressed in the most ancient revelation. When we say that Marriage is indissoluble. It's the very content of the Word of God expressed in the most ancient revelation. It goes back to the core of who we are as human beings. It's not simply a law that we made up in order to stabilize society. But because it's at the core of who we are as human beings... Society is more stable when we follow that law. So John Paul II said his goal is accompanying, so to speak, from afar the work in preparation for the synod. That's what he was doing as he started these reflections on Genesis. Not, however, by directly touching the topic, but by turning attention to the deep roots from which the topic springs. Okay, so his goal is to accompany the synod, not by touching directly on the topic of marriage, but rather turning to the roots from which the church's teaching on marriage springs. You know, and this too, I think, is where the church needs to be today, is turning to the roots from which the teaching on marriage springs. So the structure of the Wednesday audiences follows this structure of salvation history. And so it's divided up into these sort of topic areas. And John Paul II will use these as headers, basically. So he talks about original man being sort of the state of the human person between creation and the fall, or original sin. And then he'll talk about historical man, or the state of historical sinfulness, which means this is how humanity lives between original sin and the end of time, which also includes the redemptive act of Jesus Christ. And then he'll talk about eschatological man or what we're destined for in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, what we're destined for in the kingdom of heaven.
And so this approach also answers like the two most fundamental questions in life, which are, where do I come from and where am I going? Okay, where did I come from and where am I going? Exactly. But those questions also have to be answered in a personal way. Like, where did I come from and where am I going? And so we see here, like, where did I come from? What was God's original plan for me? Where am I going? This is what I'm destined for in heaven. And where am I right now? I'm somewhere along this narrative of salvation history. Like, we can all find our own lives somewhere in the narrative of salvation history. Because the way that I usually talk about this, like, is, like, God created the world, and everything was good. Then something happened, and things became distorted. And then something else happened. Jesus entered into a distorted world in order to redeem it and bring it back to clarity so that we could all go to heaven. You know, that's the story of salvation. But it's also the, the story of our own lives. You know, in saying that original sin causes a distortion, I think it's the best word to use there. Right? A distortion. But you have to teach your kids what distortion means. Because they don't really have like a good vocabulary for that. Right? So I always talk about TV and antenna TVs that we had when we were kids. Right? Now, like, our kids today don't understand that, so I have to explain it to them. So I talk about how, like, I grew up in Michigan, just outside of Detroit, and I was a Detroit Lions fan. And they were worse then than they are now. <laughs> but, like, the only thing I cared about watching on Sunday was Detroit Lions. Now, because they were so bad, they never sold out their home games, and when they didn't sell out their home games, Detroit stations would black them out, and you couldn't watch them. So we had to crank our TV antenna, which is the big antenna on the roof, and you had a remote control for it, and it cranked the antenna towards Kalamazoo. And when we pointed the antenna at Kalamazoo, we would get this fuzzy picture, and we could kind of see guys running back and forth. <laughs> and so I could tell I was watching football, but it just wasn't clear. Right? I could tell I was watching football, but it just wasn't clear. Right? It's kind of what original sin does in our lives. Right? You can still tell what it is, it's just not clear. So the family here <coughs> in... God's original plan, the family is a mother, a father, and their natural children. That's what family was in the original plan. But then you have this distortion after original sin, and the prototypical family is the family of Jacob, who we heard about in the readings of Mass today. Jacob goes off and he falls in love with a woman, and he wants to marry her. So he goes to the father and says, can I marry your daughter? He says, yes, go to that tent tonight. He goes to the tent consummates the marriage, wakes up the next morning in horror because it was the wrong sister. Right? He gets tricked into marrying her uglier older sister, Leah. And so he goes back to the father and he's like, you duped me. And the father says, of course, I can't marry the younger daughter before her older sister. Work another seven years and you can marry the woman you love. And he's like, okay. So he works another seven years, gets to marry Rachel. Yes. And then she's barren and she can't have babies. So she's jealous because Leah has babies, and she says, take my concubine and have babies with her. Jacob says, okay. 
And then Leah gets jealous and says, take my concubine and have babies with her. And Jacob says, okay. And so the next thing you know, you have one dad, four moms, 12 brothers, who all hate each other and sell Joseph to the Egyptians. Right? It's just like the Kilkali family. <laughs> no, but it's still a family. Right? It's still a family. It's just a distorted family. It's not the original plan for the family, but it is the family of Israel through which the Messiah came into the world. And young people who come from distorted families, they need to know that. They need to know that. That Jesus entered into this distorted family. He didn't just enter into the Holy Family of Nazareth. He entered into that whole family of Israel. And when we read Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, every year at Christmas, we read this reading at the Christmas Eve Mass. And it goes through that long genealogy and it names all kinds of distorted people. It's the only genealogy that mentions women. And the women it mentions are Tamar, who seduced her father-in-law to get pregnant by him so that he would finally take care of her. And then it names Rahab, who was a prostitute that helped the Israelites take Jericho. And then it mentions Ruth, who's not a member of the people of God, should never have been allowed into that family. And then it mentions Bathsheba, not even by name, just says the wife of Uriah. And at the end of that long genealogy, it says... Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of her was born Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So it goes through all of these people. You're recalling all of these stories as you're hearing this. You're like, man, that guy was messed up. Holy cow, that guy was messed up. Oh my gosh. Whew. This should be a soap opera. And then at the end it says, then was born Jesus. Because Jesus was born to redeem everybody in that genealogy. And if he can redeem that family, he can redeem my family. And he can redeem your family. He can redeem the family of our kids and our schools. That's the story of salvation. The story of salvation is that Jesus entered into a fallen world in order to redeem it. And so often when we talk about the family, we hold up like, this is what you should be. And we forget to tell the whole story of salvation. Like, this is how things were, and then Jesus entered in so that they could become clear. And proclaiming the gospel means we tell the story of a fallen world that is redeemed. We don't tell the story of a redeemed world that you're just supposed to try to figure it out, how to be part of it. And so many times, this is how we preach the gospel. This is what we do on like feasts of the family. We preach on, be like the holy family. And all these all these moms in the pews, they just start feeling all like guilty and shameful. Like, ugh, I'm not the Blessed Virgin Mary. And then they come out and they're like, Father, great homily, but my husband is not St. Joseph. <laughs> my husband was St. Joseph, I'd be, all, I'd be right there. Be like Christ in the church. My husband is not Jesus. When somebody said that to me one time, I was like, huh, that's probably true. <laughs> But the point is that Jesus entered into a broken family. And so our kids who come from broken families, they need to know Jesus entered into a broken family so that they can identify with the story. Because if they don't identify with the story, the story has nothing to do with them. We all need to find our own life in the narrative of salvation history. 
We all need to find our own life in the narrative of salvation history. So studying theology of the body is about finding our own life in the narrative of salvation history. This is why people will say things like, I studied theology of the body and changed my life. Because it changes the way we see ourselves. You know, because this is, I could tell my life story this way. Like, I was born into a family where everything was good. And then, when I was two years old, my mom died. My dad was an alcoholic who just kind of was absent in the house. I was bullied as a kid in school. People spread rumors that I was gay. Craig Rosati used to rub my face in the snow at the bus stop, and I was afraid like, of walking home from school. Like All those things are things that happen in our life that cause a distortion about who I am, who God is, and the relationships between men and women. But then Jesus entered into that distortion, and he showed me the truth about myself. And as he showed me the truth about myself, I came to understand better what it means to love and be loved. And I came to find my identity in Christ. I came to find my identity in Christ. Right? All of us can tell that story in our own lives. And if we can't tell that story in our own lives, if we just sort of say, well, I've just always known our Lord and everything was always perfect and I never really had to choose Christ because it was just given to me because my parents were, Jesus, were Joseph and Mary. You know, nobody really has that story. But sometimes we want to tell people we have that story because of our own shame about our lives. Sometimes we can have shame about our own conversion. Now, none of us should be ashamed of our conversion. What does St. Paul say? I boast about my conversion. I boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he's challenged about who he is and what he's preaching, he goes back and he says, I was a persecutor of the Jews, yada, yada, yada. Jesus entered into my life and changed everything. And now he has called me to be his apostle. And his preaching has more power. Last Sunday's reading, power is made perfect in weakness. And all of us have a conversion story to tell. Some of us have a more drastic one than others. Like, my family is kind of a caricature. And our Lord gave me a caricature of a family, probably just so I could always sit in front of somebody and say, yeah, you probably feel like this. And a lot of the time people go, yeah, how did you know that? But all of us have to tell the conver- all of us have a conversion story though. And if you don't have a conversion story, I'd invite you to have a conversion story this week. And to be able to say, I thought I knew what love was, and now I realize I didn't have any idea. Or I thought I knew Jesus, and then I came to know Jesus even more. Because that's what gives power to what we teach. Our conversion gives power to what we teach. So one of the teachers who went on the catechist retreat last spring had sort of shared with me just like she had a lot of things that happened, like that thing that happens in your life, and uh, never really talked to anybody about it. And she started coming to spiritual direction. She went on another retreat. She's like figuring out who Jesus is. And then she's like writing me these emails. Father, did you know that the resurrection is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of humanity? Of course you do. But, like, I was just teaching this to my kids, and it sounds like it's coming out of my mouth for the first time. It's freaking me out. And then she says, 
And all my kids are really listening to me now. Because there's an authenticity to what she's saying. Because when she says Jesus died for our sins, she can recall like the fact that like she was lost and got found by our Lord. And we can't help but to proclaim that with some level of emotion, with some level of seriousness, with some level of awe and wonder in our own lives. You know, that's how the gospel spread. All right, so we're going to reflect on these two accounts of creation. Okay? Again, Jesus says, did you not read from the beginning the Creator made them male and female, which is from Genesis 1, 1 through Genesis 2, 4. And then, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, which is Genesis 2, 24. So, Genesis 2 is... Most scholars say it's the more ancient tradition. Okay, the, It's called the Yahwist account. These are just academic words. Yahwist account means that the word for God is Yahweh in Genesis chapter 2. Okay, And it's typically more anthropomorphic, which means like it talks about God as if he's a person, as if he's a human being. Okay, So it'll say, like, God was looking for me in the garden. God was looking for Adam in the garden. Genesis 1 is thought to be more recent. It's called the Eloist account um, because God is called Elohim. He says it's more mature both with regard to the image of God and the formulation of the essential truths about man. Okay, so we're going to start with Genesis 1, but it's a good time now, so we'll take about a 10 minute break. <laughs>